think because when you sort of first come in, you think um, you sort of see agriculture as this, like as a monoculture, I guess, like this is what ag ag people are like. But then mm-hmm. as you start to get into it, you realise the diversity of people in the industry and, you know, I have friends that like things like me or... G'day and welcome to episode 53 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and I'm very excited to bring today's chat to you. Firstly, I'd like to thank this episode's sponsor, LAWD. LAWD are specialists in agribusiness valuations and transactions. You can find out more at their website or in the show notes, www.lawd.com.au. This week, I'm very excited to welcome a friend and someone I've got to know very well over the last few years as we work together on a project and through our own personal development through the NFF 2030 Leaders Program. Nicole McDonald is a trained researcher in the field of vocational psychology. She's put her skill set to use in a variety of settings, one of which for more than half a decade, she's been looking to understand not just cotton farmers and their job satisfaction, but she looked particularly as part of a PhD um, with a research project looking at how they can adapt in regard to what the future skill sets might be for cotton farmers in the future. So, Nick, welcome to the Humans of Ag podcast. Thanks, Ollie. Nick, firstly, I know you're in Melbourne and we got to share lockdown, I suppose, in the same city last year, but how, how is it this time around? Hopefully it's only short-lived, but we just wanted to check in on how you're getting on. Yeah, I'm not too bad. I think the first day when we weren't really sure what's happening um, was when I felt like kind of not great but as soon as we kind of have some rules around it I tend to bounce back pretty quickly so I'm just getting cozy at home it's winter trying to stay warm and yeah that's not too bad. Have you picked up any strange or interesting hobbies over the last 12 months as as part of the different lockdowns? I wish I could say I have Um, I haven't I've been madly working on um, finishing up my postdoc, yeah, a research project with funded through the CRDC, um, looking at future workforce requirements. So, part of that, I'd done some, I did some really amazing case studies with some really um, cool cotton growers. So, just trying to write that all up and get that all wrangled. Um, Timing's a, like a pretty incredible thing, isn't it? Like, thank goodness you've done the the face to face side of the visits and the research prior to last year. Was anything held back with yeah how, how the year eventuated no so pe- people are pretty good um so I, I managed to do a lot of stuff via phone this time around um so a lot of phone interviews um but could really only do that because I built some good relationships with people in the industry I think when I first started out I think it was really important for me to head out face to face um yeah no this time around yeah, it was more just trying to keep going. I don't know if you found this during lockdown, but I got, um, I actually got quite burnt out and I don't think it was actually necessarily the level of work I was doing. It was just the emotional toll that it kind of being separated from people took on you. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's kind of full on. I'm trying to find. So um, Georgie from the regional PR, she put something up the other day and I was like, oh, I reckon that's it. Cause it was like this burnout piece, but then it was called languishing. 
Oh, yeah. Adam Grant's spoken about that recently. So he's an organizational psychologist um, who actually you can follow him on Twitter. Um, I really like his work. Um, yeah, he wrote a piece about languishing. So that that kind of emotion emotional state where you're kind of nothing's really happening you're not engaged you're not particularly burnt out you're just kind of in that almost feels like being stuck I think yeah yeah well, I think how how she described it which kind of made sense was a bit of a blur <laughs> just feeling blur <laughs> yeah yeah I certainly felt a bit blur towards the end of last year only <laughs> the same yeah it was I, I was thinking it was burnout and then I was like yeah in a rut but I, yeah, I don't know. It's, I think it languishing after looking at it kind of makes sense. Yeah. So I'm certainly with you on that one. And hopefully it's short lived this time around and we're, we're back to normal. So yes. but I do, I do want to jump way back. So, so you came into ag uh, a little bit mid career potentially, but you grew up in suburban Toowoomba and you had a variety of hobbies growing up. You were a dancer and you had a bunch of different jobs, which you've shared with me over the years. So Going back in those formative younger years for you, Nick, what do you reckon as a, as a teenager, what were your interests and hobbies and kind of what were, did that potential career path look like for you? Yeah, so I, um, I was always really good at school but very lazy um, and I kind of um, had a range of interests and I could never really pin down exactly what that career path looked like for me. Like, so nothing was really standing out to me. Um, when I go into schools now, I, I talk to students about the fact that it's okay if you don't really know what you want to do. I think sometimes you kind of have to figure out it, it out through a process of working out what you don't want to do. And that was certainly the case for me. Um, in contrast, I've got a sister who knew she always wanted to be a journalist, so she could really easily leave school and go straight into that path. Um, but, yeah, I studied at high school. I studied chemistry and maths B and maths C. I always really loved maths, um, but then also did music and drama um, and English and always really liked the, that sort of creative artsy side of things. Left school and enrolled in an education degree and then promptly failed out of that. It just wasn't the right time. I, I left, yeah, I left uni with a GPA of 3.5, which, yeah, is failing. Um, wasn't the right thing for me. And then so just decided to go take a series of jobs and just earn some money for a bit, learn how to be an adult, I guess, and kind of <laughs> figure it out from there. <laughs> I love that piece around and it's nearly you've gone straight to the end of the podcast where I'm asking people advice that they'd give to students. But I think that piece around working out what you don't want to do. My dad gave that to me a few years ago and God, it was life-changing in the sense where I reckon I was looking for the job that that dream job. And I think people do it out of uni, but particularly out of school. What, what different paths did you go through with that process of elimination of working out what you didn't want to do? Oh, okay. So what job? I've done a lot of different jobs. Um, and you might have liked them. You might still like them, but yeah. Where were the steps? Yeah. Um, what did I, I tried being a ballet teacher and a gymnastics coach for a bit. I was a medical receptionist for a while. Um, I worked at a news agency as a sales assistant for ages. Yeah. Then started working at a bank and a call center and became a home lender there. And all that time, I guess, just kind of developing 
I think not just working out what I wanted to do, but how I wanted to do it. So very fortunate to work for like some people who um, owned their own business, but also were really great role models in terms of work ethic, Um, you know, so sort of developing that work ethic, taking pride in what you're doing, no matter what it is that you're doing, doing a job well done. Like I, I kind of had to learn, learn that along the way, I guess. Um, Yeah. And I always liked people um, and trying to understand sort of what made people tick Um, and looking back it's really easy to see like a nice line to psychology but I think at the time I kind of had to muddle my way through it and it really makes sense I guess going back to like looking at that those high school subjects because psych is actually like it is actually quite methodical because what you're trying to do is put some sort of framework or explain human behavior. So you do kind of need that logical mathematical pattern kind of brain set, but you also need kind of that, that really strong empathetic, um, you know, sense of understanding humanity. And so that's kind of what drama and music really kind of gave to me too. It's a pretty uh, interesting area, isn't it? Oh, that question, and I'd love to ask you where, so you're working for different people and you're saying you picked up behaviours that, that they modelled and you thought you wanted to emulate. And, and I suppose it's questions which I'm asking of myself now but have been for a while. Was there someone that you saw that you were like, I want to be like them or they're the person who I could see myself as or were you just trying to, well, yeah, was there a level of maturity there that it was... I'll just take bits of that person and bits of this person. And that's the learning that I want. Yeah, I'm probably, a, um, yeah, I'm probably a bits of this person, bits of that person. I've been really um, deliberate about trying to carve my own path in the world, I guess, um, and trying to work out what makes me satisfied rather than get, getting too caught up into diving into someone else's pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, that's always been really important to me. Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot you can learn from a lot of different people. Um, yeah, in all sorts of unexpected ways too. Yeah, no, it's been it, that path was really good for me in terms of getting me to the stage where I was ready to to kind of then go to uni and being really committed then to kind of yeah going forward from there yeah for sure I think um on that too it's like the, the level of maturity piece is is huge when it comes to study particularly out of uni you can start to build that momentum and traction onto the next thing so it was once you began studying psychology as an undergrad degree or behavioral sciences was it psych as an undergrad yeah I did a bachelor of science in psychology yeah okay uh so from that yeah it was agriculture the career path of choice or was that was the door still well and truly open in terms of where you thought you could go no I think um I always joke that maybe I don't know if this will make sense to people but um I'm like Robin Williams the actor is probably like really influential on my career I 
like I think I wanted to study teaching because I'd seen Dead Poet Society and that really resonated in me, that kind of John Keating character. And then I think I really wanted to do psychology. I really wanted to be like in Goodwill Hunting, like the Robin Williams character in that. So, yeah, I just want to be Robin Williams basically. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but psychology was interesting. So I fully started that expecting I wanted to be a counselling clinical psychologist. Um, and then I you know, along the way, you kind of test out the realities of a job, like not just what you think it's going to be. And I realised that I didn't actually um, know if I had the capacity to have the boundaries in place to be able to kind of do that work. I think it's actually like super admirable work. But because psychology was a Bachelor of Science, um, it was pretty heavily research focused as well. So did honours did a research project, absolutely loved that, um, and then finished it not knowing what I was going to do next because um, I realised I didn't want to go on to the, the Masters of Clinical Psychology and so I took another year out um, before getting the opportunity to come back and do a PhD. Um, but the, the thing was the PhD was a, a prescribed topic. It was going to be looking at job satisfaction for farm workers. I knew nothing about agriculture, but that kind of excited me too because I've always been someone who likes to take on experiences that will expand my worldview. Um, so I was like, okay, yeah, this is, a, this is an opportunity. I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to jump in, you know, wholeheartedly um, and just see where it takes me. And was there any, any reservations as part of that where you thought like once you'd got in, Hey, it's Nick here, Sheep Farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council member. I'm passionate about supporting our local community so we can improve community wellbeing and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives. Those that support education in ag, rural health, sustainability and help bridge the country city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, go to our website at www.rabobank.com.au and nominate via our community fund. We'd love to hear from you. To the program and started, do you think, holy heck, what, have I, what am I doing? I mean, it's, yeah, it's daunting because you've got to try and learn a whole new language, it feels like. Um, Literally, yeah. Yeah, with agriculture. <laughs> Bush slang. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I was very open to, to trying and proactively trying. Like I'd go out to field days, which really had nothing to do with what I was studying, but just to learn more about the work and meet some people. And I was very fortunate that, in cotton um, and I'm sure it's like this in other industries as well but I'll just say cotton because that's my experience um, that people are very generous and they pick up very quickly if you have the attitude that you're there to give it a red hot crack that they'll support you in that yeah um, and I think yeah that was certainly my experience and then I think what I just really loved about it too was I was getting an opportunity to really bring all my skills and strengths um, 
to a job and that was being like encouraged so yeah it was pretty cool and it certainly began to pay dividends that that initial research piece around yeah just just their own behaviors but then the future skill sets I'm I'm intrigued as to what does the future cotton farmer look like but uh, yeah some of the learnings along the way of what what was it from I suppose your own understanding that grew or, or challenged your perceptions but also with the farmers and the people in the industry as well with some of the research as you started to uncover where, where the gaps were and opportunities. Yeah. And I think you um, touch on something that's really important. Like I, I think I probably have spent the last six years really just trying to understand, understand where those gaps are. I think sometimes we see in research people come in with solutions and then they try and invent a problem to, to match the solution. So same as ag tech. <laughs> yeah, it's not. Maybe it's normal in the, in the industry. Well, I think, I think because we're naturally interested in understanding things, but we sometimes forget to ask, you know, what's the point in trying to understand that? Where's mm-hmm. the value in that? Um, and I think that's kind of what's exciting about working in agriculture because because I had the CRDC scholarship um, and that's funded by cotton growers' contributions. I was always very conscious of the so what of my research. Um, And, yeah, I guess I've spent this last six years trying to understand exactly where it is I can add value to the industry and I only feel like I'm starting to get somewhere with that now. It's quite a slow process. Um, or maybe that's just more indicative of me being a slow thinker. <laughs> I don't know. But that's probably your own bias as well, being overly self-critical. I'm sure the research papers and over half a decade of work, but also too, like not just the skill sets, it would have been the the assistance that you would have given these people, even just through the process of being interviewed and coming out and I suppose challenging, the not the biases, but yeah, challenging the assumptions that you began to create as part of that research, which would have definitely opened other uh, opened their eyes to different scenarios and different ways of thinking. Yeah, I'm, I'm not too sure. Um, I think, so the future of work research, work research has been really interesting because I think probably about three or four years ago, there started being this real buzz around the future of work because we were seeing increasing digitization digitalization of workplaces not just in ag but everywhere so there were so many um you know papers coming out on you know the future of work and these are the future skills required um I just remember I went to Ian Taylor at CRDC and went I think we need to do a bit of a piece around this and have a look at it um and I was fully expecting to to jump into this and and it being really focused on those digital literacy kind of tech skill side. Um, but what really came through um, was all of these adaptability skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really just turned into this, this piece um, around change management and what change management looks like for the future. Um, and, you know, that's nothing new, but really unpacking, I guess, what are good practices around change management, how can we do it more effectively? Um, I think sometimes with t- change in ag, we've had a little bit of a sink or swim mentality around it, which is fine. But um, when you've got that mentality, there are a lot of people that 
might think that could otherwise have gotten through it. And when you lose those people, you're losing, you know, knowledge. And um, the more we can retain that, I mean, the stronger we'll be moving into the future. Absolutely. I think a question I've got for you on so uh, the cotton industry itself, but so you came in from outside of agriculture, you've come in and definitely become, well, in my view, definitely part of the cotton industry. <laughs> First question, do you see yourself in agriculture now? And if so, do you identify as part of the cotton industry? Um. Yeah, I definitely see myself in agriculture now. I've just gotten my first pair of Blundstone boots. So, you beauty. Yeah. <laughs> it was a birthday present from my research team. Oh, how good. Yeah, very good. Um, and I definitely see myself as part of the cotton industry. I actually, um, I really love the cotton industry. Um, it's a really small, supportive, um, innovative thinkers, people who embrace research so Mm -hmm. it's very easy for me to to work in um the other thing is I just think it's actually I was talking with Shana Holman an extension officer the other uh oh would have been a while ago now but just the plant is actually a really interesting plant like Mm. as a researcher I know I'm on the human side of it but I've sat in um you know a lot of cotton science conferences and you hear about it and it is fascinating. It's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I definitely see myself as part of the industry. Oh, that's good. No, it was a question which I yeah, was intrigued because certainly in, in research, like is tick, but then nearly human-centered research is another one which some people may sit on, on the line. Did it take a while for you to feel like, yeah, you were part of it and, and contributing, I suppose, to your point before? Yeah, um, yes, yeah, it does. Um, but I think I think because when you sort of first come in, you think um, you sort of see agriculture as this, um, like as a monoculture, I guess, like this is what ag, ag people are like. But then mm-hmm. as you start to get into it, you realise the diversity of people in the industry and, you know, I have friends that like things like me or do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, absolutely. Just, I don't know if I'm articulating that very well, but. No, I think you've done it well using the monoculture <laughs> reference because I think that will yeah flick the switch for a lot of people where you're like, yeah, it's, it is very true where it's in agriculture, it's a person in an Akubra who's standing in a paddock, which it certainly is not, not these days anyway. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, certainly, um, the 2030 Leaders Program, which you touched on at the start when you were introducing me, was a big um, part of sort of breaking that imposter syndrome kind of thing that we've been alluding to for me and um, and feeling more at home as part of the industry. Um, yeah. I'd love to know on that. So you've done the perfect conduit. <laughs> what led you to applying for that, Nick? Um, so as part of like my process for trying to work out where I kind of fit and where I could add value, I would always keep an eye on um, what was going on in terms of policy talks because I guess part of the application of my research I've always thought about could be in terms of workforce policy. Um, And when I saw uh, the National Farmers Federation were doing those 2030 roundtables, I was like, okay, I'll, you know, go and have a bit of a listen thinking it was going to be like a heap of speakers. I actually ended up at Warrigal, which you were at, Ollie. Yeah, I know. And 
like I didn't even realize until we were in Canberra and you brought it up. I was like, because yeah, it, it was there weren't many people at all. It was what 20, 25 of us. Yeah, I don't know. There was a, there was enough for the, it to be like a circle mm. of chairs in the room, um, and yeah, I've heard you talk about it in the past, and it certainly wasn't just passively sitting there listening. It was like active brainstorming and and discussions, and I think. Um, the the paper and this yeah the strategic paper that came out of those roundtables is really really an excellent piece of work. Um, but yeah, then after that, heard about the twenty thirty leaders program, and I was like, oh okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw my hat in the ring for this. And I still remember on my application form, like I kind of wrote a little bit about my vision in terms of like supporting people in their career development and making you know ag the industry of choice for young people coming through and I ended my application with and if I'm unsuccessful in this application I'll I'll just apply again next year and (laughs) I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna like kind of that whole this is actually like I am super committed to this vision and I'm going to see this through with or without your help. But if you could help me out, that would be really good. (laughs) (laughs) Please. Yeah. (laughs) Has the vision changed or wavered or have you refined it or has it, yeah, has it just got stronger and clearer? Um, It has changed a bit. And it's funny, like you should mention this because I've been further refining it because I am doing the Future Cotton Leaders program at the moment um, because there are, some specific things I'm trying to take the research at the moment in cotton and really develop and and work out how to extend it which really means upskilling myself in um, practice change and things like that that aren't really um, my area of strength but my vision for me now I've written it down Um, so I want to be contributing to social change and acceptance of the industry by broader society and speaking regularly about the positive and inclusive culture that exists in the agriculture industry and consequently for a career in agriculture to be seen as aspirational and promoted by career guidance professionals. So I feel very strongly about, um, I just think ag is quite possibly the best kept secret in terms of meaningful and purposeful careers. And it shouldn't be, it should be top of the list. You know, I just love it. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. And, and I think that, and what was it guided by, sorry, it was about career, career guidance. Oh, yeah. I just want to, I just want a career, a career in agriculture to be seen as aspirational and promoted by career guidance professionals. Cause and that's heard- the interesting part, isn't it? Promoted by career guidance professionals. Cause so often, and it was the, in my case as well, it was, oh, my careers advisor said, why don't you do X, Y, or Z instead of A. And so often, like at that point in time, that's you think, oh yeah, they they have this full suite of tools. They understand all the different ins and outs of things. So they know me, and that must be the best path. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is like, and I can understand when people look at things like drought and some of the real challenges we face in terms of our work in agriculture that, um, you know, they, they may think it's not a particularly good path for people. But I think yeah. if anything we've learnt over the last 12 to 18 months that, you know, other industries were kind of 
um, got these illusions of security. Like it doesn't mean that they're actually secure either. I think mm. we need to be working to become more adaptable as individuals. And in fact, I think agriculture, because of the nature of it, develops our ad- adaptability as people. Um, and that's an incredible, incredible strength for you know anyone. Even if someone came and you know did a gap here in agriculture, they would walk away with so many skills that would carry them through their you know their Definitely. other careers. Yeah, but I just think. Yeah, I think there's something really special about it that people should give it a go. For sure. And I think it's heading that way. Well, just uh, the conversations, and I suppose I'd say I haven't been listening in closely enough probably, but like the the different conversations now that are happening with agriculture as a centrepiece. So with governments and feeding people and health and disease, nutrition, then you've got these big things around like actually creating healthy environments and like it's, it's all actually coming back with ag at the middle, but also in a global context. I think whether people want to work at home in Australia or they, they're passionate about people or they want to go and see the world through a job, like there is serious money going into these areas, whether it's reducing carbon emissions or improving soil and, and biodiversity. Like there, it, it's going to be huge in the next few years. I don't even have to say like the next decade. Yeah, yep. I just think, um, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, you just look at the sustainable development goals and ag underpins or is linked to nearly every single one of them. Um, Yeah, it's pretty phenomenal. And, yeah, I agree. I I think it's well-placed to be, like, that industry of the future, you know, that, you know, we know it is. Yeah, and, and exactly your words before, meaningful and purposeful. So I think in that global context, you were, as part of your research project, you actually got to go to the UN chair for career gardens. I think I got that right. May yeah. not have. We'll work it yeah. out later. <laughs> yeah, but, so uh, really lucky. So um, my um, last supervisor when I was doing my PhD, and he's still a mentor for me, um, is a really well-respected um, academic in the world of uh, career development uh, Professor Peter McElveen, um, and he got invited to go to this uh, sum- essentially a summit um, in Italy um, about career guidance, looking at it from a global perspective, the importance of it. Um, and, yeah, so we sort of, he he's the one that um, originally sort of wrote a a really great paper around the vocational psychology of agriculture. So I've certainly inherited his passion for the area. Um, But yeah, we went over there and then we were sort of, I guess, representing Australia and sort of having a chat about agriculture as the context for, you know, really quality careers. It was, yeah, it was fascinating, interesting. I think what it did, but is it just brought home how context is everything. So you know, there was a woman in our group from Egypt and they were facing very, very different societal issues that were impacting career guidance um, in their area. So I think, yeah, challenging to try and get that kind of global perspective because every context is slightly different. But, yeah, super rewarding to go and check that out. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. I didn't realise it was over in Italy. For some reason I just thought it, like, default in my head that it was just a call you dialed in on but the world was different back then than what it is now <laughs> yeah yeah 
I'd love to use that. Yeah, I suppose as a bit of a conduit to talking about the, the outcome of what we worked on as part of that 2030 Leaders program. And it was This Is Ozag, which as a hashtag looks a bit funny. So I still think of it now every time I'm like, it, it says sausage. <laughs> I still remember when we saw it and I was like, I can't unsee that now. No. Like- <laughs> yeah, even when so, like, because people still like use it as a hashtag now, it still comes up and I just, my eyes are straight to it. Yeah, just just around that, like our, our group of eight of us in the end, um, a pretty interesting, special group in terms of what we learned off each other. What, what were us? Yeah, what were some of the learnings and takeaways that you have or, or had and, and still refer to uh, as part of that course? Yeah, so I think um, when we were trying to come up with our project, because you do do that project based kind of learning component um, to leadership. Um, we all shared a real passion for getting the next generation into agriculture, building trust and respect within broader society for what we do. Um, and so I think it was really, and, and social license was a big issue that was sort of cropping up um, in, com- in industry conversations at that time as well. Um, and so I think it was pretty natural for us to want to develop some sort of program or project around social license and and connecting um communities together um i think it was really good we had a really strong vision that it wasn't going to be telling anything it was going to be a two-way conversation Hmm. um which i think is really important and you know um yeah i guess what i learned from it was that we need to be having these conversations and having a conversation means listening to what other people have to tell you as well about their experiences with food or what they're thinking about farming. Um, and yeah, sort of trying to make that connection. Definitely. I was at Beef Week a few, few weeks ago and around that, the two-way conversations. And it's nearly funny to think like we're nearly three years on from that course and everything that we talked about and tried to do is still absolutely relevant but there's still such a gap in terms of what we were raising but uh someone on on one of the panels mentioned that the the real skill is listening to understand not listening to respond and that's something as as an industry but even individually if we started to take that approach then you really you not only grow your own understanding but you actually grow the level and the robustness of the conversations that you are actually having Yeah, and I think you have to enter those conversations being open to the fact that they might change you. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. And I think our group did a really good job of trying to explore it, Um, yeah, in whatever rough and ready ways we did, but yeah. Yeah, and how quickly. So on that point around different conversations, so our project was about like holding two-way uh, conversations, connecting both producers and consumers. So one of those ones was with a friend of yours, Kel. And then in our group, we had Tim Kingmer, TK and Tegan Hogan-Smith. So Teagues is a farmer from Charters Towers, cattle grazier involved in the live export industry, had significant implications on her business with the live export ban in 2011. TK is an intensive pig farmer. And then Kel, was, is she vegan or vegetarian? So she actually probably wouldn't put labels on it. But what uh, Kel is, um, 
she's an absolute animal lover. Mm-hmm. So um, as long as I've known her, has always loved animals and probably subscribes to, I think she even says it in the podcast, she's like, her ethos is, well, if we can, you know, survive without eating animal products, why wouldn't we try to do that if we love them, you know? So, Mm -hmm. um, but Kel's also someone who I knew would be up for the conversation because she's not, she's, she's a very empathetic person herself. Um, She had her partner, um, her husband, Trav is actually a muralist and had painted the silos at Thallon and through that had gotten to know, um, quite a few farmers in the community there, you know, who were livestock farmers. Um, and part of that, that relationship they'd formed with that community, you know, Kel would go out and has helped them put on, I think it's called Grazing by the Waterhole, like an event showcasing local produce, um, you know. So even though she might make those decisions for herself and her diet and her lifestyle, she's certainly not... Um, someone who isn't open to listening to other people or connecting with other people if they think differently to her. Yeah. Yeah. And so nearly three years on, what do you, we'll be putting up, it's a five part, six part short podcast series. I think they're 15 minutes each or something. So I'm actually going to upload them on yeah the humans of ag podcast under this is Oz ag. So people can listen in. They're a bit rough and ready. They're not, (sighs) they're not quite humans of agriculture quality, Ollie. (laughs) <laughs> no, nah, I don't know about that. Better, better host anyway, Nick. That's for sure. With um, yeah. Do you remember some of some of the key takeaways or moments that might have stuck with you from those chats? I mean, I think I um think everyone sort of explained their perspectives in a really lovely way, and I would like to actually stress, like, so we opened up the conversation right from the get-go. The first question we asked was, what's important to you when living a good life? Mm. Um, And we kind of, I guess, what that allowed us to do was to give sort of our motherhood value statement of, you know, and, and I think most people, when they think about what's important to them when living a good life is to leave the world in a better condition when you found it, you know, kind of being kind, you know, Mm. having, you know, um, that sort of, that sort of slant, at least that's what we all kind of touched on. And I think as soon as you understand that people, that's all most people are striving for. We just kind of see how we get there a little bit differently. Sometimes Um, you kind of have that joint, um, a human experience to kind of come together to have those conversations. Mm. Um, Tegan spoke really eloquently about her love for her animals and um, TK certainly unpacked a couple of myths. So, um, you know, people are over overwhelmed with information these days um, about, you know, agriculture Um, and the conditions in it some of the videos they see are not relevant to our Australian context you know so we talked about that Um, you know it was a really good conversation and like if people do actually listen to the podcast they are a bit rambling we didn't edit anything it literally is just an hour-long conversation that's been trimmed into 10 minute 10 minute sectors Um, but we really tried to also support that podcast with a link to like different resources and yeah that no, was good it was a good experience I think everyone walked away um, with an appreciation of 
you know, everyone's trying to do the best they can with what they they have um, mm. and everyone's entitled to, you know, um, live their, you know, life how they want to. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, well, I'm looking forward to seeing what, how people respond and they're probably going to look at it and go, thank God these things are only 10 minutes. We're sick of Ollie rambling on for 50 minutes with people. It's also uh, one of the things too, I think as soon as you start to try and live in the middle, but like no one actually likes you. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. it was always there for Kel that, you know, if she had this conversation with farmers, would people who feel more strongly in her community kind of not like that? Hmm. Um, and with, you know, our um, our farming mates, you know, as soon as they start having that, those conversations, you know, quite publicly where they, you know, are being quite candid about the strengths and weaknesses of the industry, will will their industry not quite like that? I don't know. It, it is challenging to try and move into the middle, I think, sometimes. Yeah. No, it definitely is. And I suppose, yeah, it's, it's putting, putting your head out up there or putting your opinion out there. It's always give someone an opportunity to, to shut it down or have a contrary view. So mm. as long as I suppose you're happy that, yeah, once you put it out there, it's up to people and it's no reflection on yourself. It's, it's how they perceive it and different people can have different views. Yep. <laughs> awesome. Well, Nick, I suppose on that, is there any other questions or other things you want me to throw out there or are we happy to wrap this up? Yeah, no, I can't really think of anything other than um, really loving the potty, Ollie. Well, thanks. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> Number 53. Well, it's actually like 50. Jeez, close to 59. But because I didn't, uh, in hindsight now, I did a few little episodes with the Royal Melbourne show, six episodes, I think. And I didn't number it as humans of art, which I should have. Because now I'm, I'm going to get to 100 episodes and people are like, no, you're not, you're at 90, 93. 